Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Welcome to Crossroads this morning. I hope you're having a grateful Memorial Day weekend. I always find it a little off-putting when somebody says have a happy Memorial Day. So I hope it's a grateful one for all of us. And, and you know, I think when it comes to days like this, they remind me of, of greater truths. The idea that freedom isn't free, that people died so that we could be here, sit here, worship here, have the freedom to know who God is. It reminds me that things are worth sacrificing for. It reminds me of greater goods. It reminds me of kind of in one way what we talked about last week, which is you know, we stepped into this conversation of a greater life a few months ago, a couple months ago, and said that there is a way that Jesus says to live inside of the world that we live in now that more accurately reflects his truth. He said in Matthew 5 to 7, it's kind of the pronouncement of his kingdom, and he sat with a bunch of people on a hill, and he said, let me tell you about, let me give you a glimpse into what life's supposed to be like because I made it. Let me tell you what my kingdom's about, and you guys aren't living in it, and it's better. It's richer, and it's fuller, and it's harder, but it's better. And so he started listing off these things about life that would make it richer and fuller because he created it, and, and we talked about religion, and we talked about materialism, and we talked about last week, judgment. And when we talked about judgment, it really was that idea that there are things worth sacrificing for. And judgment has a negative connotation in our culture, especially with the church, because the way we've done it hasn't been very loving or grace-filled. It's been condemning. So when we talked about judgment, I think if we believe that God's good is the best good, that Jesus is called to the culture that we can create as we live out his rhythm and waves, ways right in the middle of this one, if we believe that's the best way, it's unloving if I don't tell you about it. It's unloving if I don't paint a picture of what family could be and marriage could be and religion could be and day-to-day life could be if we serve one another and are filled with joy. It's unloving if I believe God's good is the best good and then I don't think it's the best good for you. And so we talked about judgment and we really framed it in an idea that the judgment that we have isn't necessarily something we run from, but how we do it matters. So we said greater judgment seeks to restore, not condemn Jesus says that judgment isn't a conversation about condemnation, but it's a reminder of restoration. So when we go into situations and we have to differentiate and decide, and we have to say, I agree or disagree, we do it because we believe Jesus' way is the best good, that there's a greater way to do life. And really, what we're talking about today is a continuation of that conversation. Because I think that Judgment is something we're called into. Again, not in or out mentality. That's God's job. Judgment in terms of are you living into the ways and values of Jesus, but how we do it matters. Here's the tough part for you and me. The trickiest part of it all is that we live in 20, whatever it is, 19 still, I think, you know? We live in 2019, and you and I are inundated. We are bombarded with stories and messages all the time. Uh, Nielsen, they study how much we watch TV and other things. They came out in the first quarter of 2018, and they said that nearly half of an adult's day, 11 hours a day, adults, that's you and me, spend looking at a screen of some sort. Whether it's a, uh, a Kindle or mostly a TV, it's like five hours a day, or an iPhone. We spend 11 hours of our waking day, which if you don't have kids, is like 16 hours. If you do have kids, you're awake like 22 and a half of those hours. 
We spend 11 hours a day looking at a screen, and here's the deal, and here's the scary part, and here's what makes judgment difficult, is every minute of the day that I'm looking at a screen, I'm being sold something. I'm being sold a story or a product. Whenever we get on anything, we're being told something about something, and Jesus steps into that conversation and says, when we judge, you have to know the good stories from the bad ones. You have to know the greater life from the not greater life, and today it's what he talks about. And it's scary because we are targeted in how we hear those stories too. So I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine probably three, four months ago, I forget, and I'm driving down LBJ and I remember it. And, and I was talking about something that I'd wished and dreamed and hoped for. I was talking about maybe possibly getting new gutters on my roof because I'm 35 and that's my greater life right now, everybody. All right? And I was literally saying, man, I hope I can get new gutters. I hope that I don't have to pay for it. We're talking about it. And I hang up the phone and I, I check my phone. I think I got on Facebook or something or I don't remember, some social media app. And all of a sudden, I had never Google searched gutters yet because I'm not there emotionally where I think that's something that I actually want, you know? I hadn't really researched it. I just spoke it out loud on the phone once and the first ad I see is for leaf guards for your new gutters, right? It scared me to death. We are bombarded, inundated with stories every minute of our every 11-hour day that we spend looking at something. And I think this is the challenge, the biggest challenge that you and I have in the world right now is differentiating fact from fiction in the stories that we're told. In the ads that we see, social media, the news, pick and pop, whatever you think. I think our challenge is as we interact with everybody else's version of good, as we interact with everybody's stories of what should be, our job as Christians is to sit in the middle of that and say, this one I know is true and this one I know is not. So Jesus, in the middle of the sermon, talking about his life, his culture, his kingdom, says you guys have to be able to tell the difference. You have to. And so he starts into a section on essentially um, false teachers because he knows something that's true. What you consume is who you're becoming. What you consume is who you're becoming, who you listen to, what you watch, it's what you gravitate towards. And so he says, you have to know the good stories from the bad, and you got to know how it's shaping you. And so he says, in the middle of this text, watch out for false teachers. So we're going to talk about that today, but before we do that, we're going to spend some time praying that you don't think I'm one of them, okay? Um, we believe two things at Crossroads on Sunday mornings we want to see happen. And, and one is, we open up the scriptures every week, because the scriptures is the story of God. And, and that's where we find his character. And even though some of us have been in this text before, we understand that that doesn't make it bad or old. It just deepens our understanding of God's character when we come back to the same texts again and again and again because we can never get to the end of knowing who God is. That's why we worship him. And then two, we want to worship. Um, both these things are interactive. When we sit here and we read the word, we're called to engage and ask the spirit how he's shaping and forming me. And then when we worship, it's our response to a God who's worthy of it, who's bigger than us. So I'm gonna spend some time and I'm gonna pray um, and I'm gonna ask you, to join me in praying silently just for yourself that the spirit might do something in you today and then also for me uh, that I don't dip into too much heresy in a week on uh, false teachers. Okay, sound good? Let's pray. God, I am so thankful, especially today, uh, just of the sacrifices of others that I can be here. For the sacrifices of, of literally, you know, the men and women that have served our country, that's given us freedom. I'm, I'm so incredibly thankful I pray that we today enter into this space and leave this space with a sense of gratefulness for what others have done for us. I pray as we talk about our text today and talk about the nature of how we judge good from bad, how we know who to trust and what stories to believe in, I, I pray that you just give us a measure of grace 
that he helps us understand. Spirit, I pray that you do some work in our lives today. I'd ask if you're comfortable, take a couple seconds and just to yourself, say a silent prayer and ask the Spirit to do something in you that he might shape your soul into more, into looking more like Jesus this morning as we talk about his word. I ask you to pray for me, that my words might be uplifting and encouraging and edifying, and they might accurately paint the character of God that we're looking at today. Probably sings the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. We're in it together. Matthew chapter 7, everybody. We're going to pick up in verse 13. Let me tell you how today's going to go. We're looking at a couple, three different segments of twos, essentially. So 13 to 14, 15, really, to 1920, and then 21 to 23. And in each of those, there's a couple that you've probably heard about before, including where we're kicking off. And what I want to do is kind of relook at some of those verses that we might be familiar with and look at them in a, a little different light based on the context. And then two, in the middle there... There's some really, really practical stuff about how to find out false teachers. And it's not going to be earth-shattering, and you probably heard it before, but it's worth saying again. We're just going to look at the text, and we're going to say, how does it tell us to look out for people that are selling you the wrong story, that are telling you the wrong version of what truth is? And so we start in verse 13, and it goes like this. Enter through the narrow gate, because the gate is wide and the way is spacious that leads to destruction. And there are many who would enter through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So right up front, what we see is Jesus saying to his people, coming out of a conversation on judgment, you guys got to know there's two choices here. And I don't know how you were taught this sermon growing up, if you were. But I was taught it a few times, and it was always this call to better morality. You know, like on this side was the wide path, and there was like syringes and like booze and things like that, you know. And on this side was the narrow path, and it looked a little dark, but at the end there was like this iridescent glow, like a tanning bed or something, you know, and you're supposed to go down that one. And so when I was taught this growing up, it was a lot about morality, of make the right moral decisions. That's what the narrow path means. And, and I don't... I think it doesn't fully mean that all the way. I just don't know if that does justice to the context of our Sermon on the Mount. See, from the beginning to the end, we're almost at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is laying out two different paths. He's laying out two different paths of how you live life. He's laying out the path that follows after him that begins with a personal relationship that's inside out. And because I know God, I follow God. And because I follow God, I look like God. That's why he starts this whole thing with blessed are the poor in spirit that you might know that you need so that you might know that you can live out God's ways versus the other path, which is the way of us. And this isn't the first time this conversation has popped up in scripture. Psalm 1, for example, is a book. The entire book is a wisdom lit book. It's about wise things. And the wise book in the Bible starts out like this, how blessed is the one who does not follow the advice of the wicked. Or stay into the pathway with sinners. Or sit in the assembly of scoffers, scoffers. Instead, he finds pleasure in obeying the Lord's commandments. He meditates on his commandments day and night. In Deuteronomy, Moses is sitting with his people. And he says, as they enter the land, look, I've set before you today. Life and prosperity on one hand, death and disaster on the other. To keep it going, in Colossians, in the New Testament, after Jesus had gone back to be with God... 
Paul writes and says, therefore, you've been raised with Christ, so keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Keep thinking about the things above, not the things on earth. And here's what we see. As Jesus is kind of landing the plane, if you will, that's what we call it in the preaching world when you wrap up. As he's landing the plane in the Sermon on the Mount, he brings them back to there's two ways to live life. Holy for Jesus or external righteousness that just impresses the people around you. And so he's calling us into, and he has the entire time, and it's kind of the message of the scripture, he's calling us into a singularity of focus in life that starts from an internal relationship that manifests itself in outward actions, and that's the only way that it works. So leading up to this passage, he warned against hypocritical behavior in prayer and in fasting and in giving because he says that is not what's supposed to happen. My life, my kingdom, my people follow after me with everything they have. They're the same person when you see them and when you don't see them. So when we talk about the context of the narrow and the wide gates, part of it is simply, he's saying, live a life that is fully and singularly devoted to me that manifests itself in outward actions. It's not just a morality conversation. He's saying, live a holistic pursuit of me, unlike the people you see around you, because he's speaking against the Pharisees who made it an art to deceive people that they were externally righteous but didn't live that way other places. And when we say narrow and wide there, it carries another connotation, not just of breadth, but actually hardness. So he's literally saying here that the narrow way is more difficult. And I think I know that to be true, and hopefully you do too. Sometimes, speaking of false teachers, we get into people in places that talk about how following God is going to make your life easier and better. I agree with the second, I don't agree with the first. (laughs) Because it's hard. Because he calls me to give of myself. And it's harder to give of myself than it is to live for myself. John Stott says it like this. He says, self-love, hypocrisy, mechanical religion, false ambition, censoriousness. These things do not have to be learnt or cultivated. Effort is needed to resist them. No effort is required to practice them. Jesus calls us to live for him and not ourselves. He says there's a better way, but it's a harder way. And that's the first thing we recognize coming into this text is that the call to follow Jesus is not easy. But here's something else. Nothing that's worth it is usually easy, you know? And I know it's harder to live for Jesus. I know it's harder to make my entire life focused on and consistently living out the ways and rhythms of Jesus, not just in public spaces. Because every Sunday morning, after I'm done in the second service, I find my daughter somewhere and I take a victory lap around this building, right? And people look at me and they ooh and awe at how adorable I am. she is, all right? <laughs> and, and, and that's great and that's good. But what Jesus is saying is, sure, take a victory lap all you want, but are, are you changing the diapers at home at 2 a.m., you know? Are you serving well? Are you that kind of dad all the way through? That is much, much harder when it's 2 a.m. And I don't want to wake up. And I know that if I just lay there and pretend that I'm laying on my good ear, not my deaf ear, my wife will, you know? You, you laugh, I think those thoughts. And so he's saying, live with one accord towards one way. It is much harder to do. But again, greater effort usually is worth it. Sarah and I celebrated our five-year wedding anniversary yesterday and our marriage has been good and it's usually better when we go on those date nights and ask those five questions, which we have a kid now so we don't do anymore, but we used to, you know? When we ask about how we can cultivate our marriage, how we can grow our marriage, how we can take time out of our day to serve the other person. It's graduation season and I'm willing to bet people that earned diplomas feel like it was worth the sacrifice. It's a greater good, but it took something from you. Greater life usually takes greater effort. So Jesus is calling us into, when he says narrow, he means something harder. 
And so he's calling us into this path that takes more effort, that is worth it, that is a singularity of focus of life lived that begins with inward action, inward, inward commitment that leads to outward action. And then he's saying, but watch out, not everybody calls you into that kind of relationship with me. And so you get to verse 15. And he says, watch out for the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are voracious wolves. So when he's talking about false prophets there, again, he's playing off this external righteousness or internal motivation that we see throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, live into my family ways and rhythms all the time. That's how you create the culture of my kingdom right here, right now. Don't just do it topically. Then you're not going to do any good whatsoever. And so when he says, watch out for false prophets, he's warning against these people that just act out their righteousness and don't live into the righteousness of Jesus. They don't believe it actually changes anything, but just wants people to see them as good. And one thing we have to recognize from the very beginning is that this call to watch out for false prophets is not one that's new just because the Pharisees existed. Whenever choice entered into the mix of God's good ways, there became false teaching, you know? We've never known a time without it. Genesis 3, it's a story at the very beginning The serpent said to the woman, if you don't know the story, God creates everything, gives it to mankind, says cultivate this, spread my goodness, show my love to all of creation. I'm putting you in charge. We failed and this is the beginning of the failure. A snake comes up to the woman and says, surely you will not die. And here's something that baffles me. This is a land before any conflict. A snake comes up and they engage one another and they don't run away and yell, right? That'd be amazing. I'm... My family is scared of every single bug. Yesterday, there was a wasp that got into my house. My wife took my child, ran and shut herself in the laundry room and yelled, right? I got a magazine, I rolled it up, and I beat the heck out of my blinds. I broke them. I literally broke them. (laughs) It's wasps. It's this big. I've been stung before. A snake comes up to Eve and says, hey, surely you won't die if you eat what God says not to eat. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. We see a small twisting of what God said with consequences that last till today. We see false teaching for the very first time. And in, it continues throughout the Old Testament. The prophets mostly are saying, don't buy into the false teaching. Don't buy into the false teaching of the culture around you. It extends to the first church in the book of Acts, which is the spreading and growing of the church after Jesus went back to be with God. Paul says this to the people um, that just had started a church with him. He says, I know that after I'm gone, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Even from among your own group, men will arise, teaching perversions of the truth to draw disciples away from them. I say that to say that this idea, this problem, this reality, this truth, the false teachers has been around from the get-go, is around now, and isn't going anywhere. There's a movie I like called Rounders. And I love this quote. If you played cards, you've heard it before. It's about Texas Hold'em. It says, if you look around the table, the poker table, and you can't tell who the sucker is, it's you. You know? (laughs) Another pastor said, if you can't identify any voices you hear as false, it's not because you aren't being exposed, but because you're falling for it in some way. Why I say that is because we are told stories all day long. We're inundated all day long. And if you can't sit there and differentiate the right from the wrong, the good from the bad, the true from the false, if you can't do that, you're falling for something. Jesus calls us not to be passive listeners, but to be active theologians. It's our job because we're protecting something that's worth protecting. Values that extend beyond us, that paint a picture of what can be and what will be again. 
So Jesus calls us into, when he says, watch out for false prophets, Jesus calls us into the role of theologians. And, and I love that. Because oftentimes, not often, sometimes I hear people say, well, I'm not a theologian. That's the pastor's job. I'm just going to back up. I'm going to listen. I'm going to take good notes. But I'm going to let them think through those things. I didn't go to seminary. I can't. And I think that God would look at you and Jesus would look at you and the disciples would look at you and say, that is not an excuse to not know and grow. That is not an excuse to press in, to not press into the character of God. That's not an excuse to study and, and learn who God is because there are false narratives. And if you don't study and grow in your ability to understand God, you won't know the difference. C.S. Lewis says it like this, and I really liked it. Good philosophy must exist if for no other reason because bad philosophy needs to be answered. And so he makes the case up front that there will be false prophets and then he makes the case that it's our job to do something about that. And so the first thing we see in our text that I think is really beautiful is that he calls us all to be theologians together. And when we say theologians, just to back it up a little bit, really, it's just theology is the study of God in our world. How do we see God moving in our world? How do we see his character in the world? What do we know about God? And we see it through the scriptures primarily. So we're all called to grow in our ability to see, know, and understand who God is. And it's not a competition, and we go at our own rate, and this is not something you're going to be tested on one day, right? We, we don't play this game for Bible trivia, knowledge, and points. But it's because we can look at the stories that we're told all the time and say, that's not who God is, and I know it, I know it, I know it. And so we can come here on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or any kind of groups that we're in and challenge one another because as we share our knowledge and, and, and growing understanding of the character of God, our joy deepens. Mine gets richer. Mine gets deeper. I'm challenged. And here's what it doesn't mean. It, it doesn't mean we're not going to disagree. Disagreements happen, just FYI. I'm going to disagree on how to interpret some Bible passages Then you might, and that's okay. It's not changing the character of God or the work and person of Jesus Christ. And when we disagree, you can come up to me after a sermon, not on social media, and say, Charlie, let's chat over coffee filled with grace, all right? You can have those moments. It's not saying we don't disagree. It's saying that we watch out for people that fundamentally change who Jesus is and what he called us into. Those are different conversations. And so if you look at the next part of the text, he's going to give us three ways to look for it. Same verse, but he says, look out for false teachers or prophets. You've got to understand what that word means. In the Old Testament, prophets had two meanings, right? One is they foretold. So literally they would say, this is going to happen, God says. I declare that this will one day, in 30 years, in 20 years, if you don't repent, right? That was one job of the prophet. The other job wasn't to foretell, it was to foretell, which literally means that they said, this is what God has said. Let me tell you about it again, because you've seemingly forgot. They took the words of God and reminded you of them. They taught the scriptures. They exegeted the text. They said, here is what God says. And they took what God said in the Old Testament and they said, let me tell you about it all over again because this is his commandments. So Deuteronomy is. One more time, it's Moses standing up in front of his people saying, let me remind you of God's good ways before we go into this land. He's prophesying over his people. And so when we talk about the text, when we talk about what God is calling us to do, how we judge false teachers. It's going to seem really, really, really obvious, but it needs to be said. The first thing we do when we tell false teachers is we look at what they teach. That's just it. I know it seems really elementary, but we look at what they teach. And here at Crossroads Bible Church, guess what we're going to teach? That's right, the Bible. Yeah. And let me tell you why we teach the Bible. We teach the Bible because we believe fundamentally that the Bible tells us about God. 
The Bible tells us about the story of God to redeem and rescue his people. We believe the Bible is the best and only place we can go to see who the God is that we worship. And so we study the Bible. We study the Bible because it doesn't just paint a picture of what did happen, but what can and will happen again because God is good and loving and faithful and pursues us. We study the Bible because we see the crooked line of our culture and we need something to tell us what straight is. We need a true north. There's a missionary's wife, Elizabeth Elliot. She's a missionary as well. She said, the word of God, I think of as a straight edge, which shows up, which shows up our own crookedness. We can't really tell how crooked our thinking is until we line it up with the straight edge of scripture. Because oftentimes my life and my Facebook feed and my emotions lie to me all the time, you know? And I need to know what up is. My dad flew planes in the Navy a little bit he would tell me stories that I'm choosing to believe are true of how before instrument panels and, I mean, before, excuse me, um, simulators, they would take him up and they'd blindfold him and they would do things with the plane to make it feel like he was going everywhere, up, down, around. And then they'd ask him questions like, hey, where, what direction are we flying right now? And he said, he would swear, he would swear that he was going up, he was ascending, and then he'd take the blindfold off and he's nose diving into the ground. It's the idea that they did this because they said, you have to trust your instrument panel because you're going to swear that this is true, but these are never wrong. This is your true north. It'll save your life. And so what Elliot says is the Bible is our true north because it tells us about the character of a good God and what his family looks like. So it has authority over my emotions. Not that my emotions are bad, but they can lie to you. They can lie to me. They tell the story of what we're created and called to be. Augustine of Hippo says the Holy Scriptures are our letters from home. I love that. It's something we go back to to remind us of who our identity is because you are told stories about what is good and how you're judged and how you find value every minute of the 11 hours a day that you look at a screen. And we have to remember that that doesn't find or merit or give value. That's only found in the character of God who said that we were created good. And I need to remember that's true. That's where it reminds me of who I am, the God who created me. And so at Crossroads, we believe something called verbal plenary inspiration. Let me break that down for you. Um, verbal meaning the word of God. Plenary meaning totality or whole. And inspiration meaning God inspired all of it. So we mean that the Bible is the word of God and all of it, not just the New Testament, not just the Old Testament, not just the red letters are, are in every way authoritative over all of our life. And that all the words that are written in there were inspired by, put there by God through the writers that he chose and used. So we believe all of it's applicable to us. We don't pick and pop what we believe in the Bible. We believe the Bible. And so we teach it because it does the best job of telling us the story of who God is. Because that's the clearest picture we have for him in our world. I was thinking this week about... um, there was, I think, 14 or 15, I went to my first little, like, away leadership camp thing in D.C., and I, uh, I met a girl, and I liked this girl, and we had a little, I don't know if we had, like, little camp crushes, you know what I'm talking about? I'm realizing right now that on the weekend of my five-year anniversary, I shouldn't talk about other women, but we're into it, so, um, yeah, <laughs> I met this girl, liked this girl, you know, this was before, really, this was really before cell phones, for the most part, I don't think I had one yet, and if I did, Texting didn't exist at that point because my name's Charlie, and so, like, just to write my name, I had to press 17 characters because you had to go, like, ABC. I don't know if you remember what T9 is, but it's terrible. 
And so no touchscreens, none of that stuff. So we couldn't text back and forth and didn't have a phone to call people on, especially at that point, long distance existed. You know, she was from Pennsylvania. So there was no way I was going to make that phone call every time. And so I remember we did a couple letters before it fizzled out. And, and she wrote me these letters and she made me this album, the CD. And uh, I remember when she sent it to me, I, I listened to it again and again and again. And I read the same letter again and again and again because it helped me remember who she was and what I liked about her, you know? When we read the scriptures over and over again, whether you've heard the story or not, it reminds us of the God that we fell in love with, that we're in love with, that we passionately pursue. And so when we talk about, you know, false teachers by what they teach, if they're not teaching from the Bible, I'm questioning if they're a teacher at all about God because that's where we find who God is. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. So again, it sounds really basic, but if you want to see if a teacher is legit or not, look at what they're teaching. And you can watch Oprah all day long, and I'm not saying that's bad. I think there's wisdom there, but it's not teaching you about God like the scriptures are, because that's what this book was created to do. So we're going to go there every single week, knowing that it's good for us. So he says, watch out for the false prophets, the people that don't rightly tell you the story of who God is from the story of God that we find in the Bible. But he keeps going. He says, watch out for the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly voracious wolves. So not only need to look out for what they teach, look out for who they are when they're not teaching. Look out for who they are when they're not teaching, because this is a culture Jesus is speaking into of external righteousness that prayed out loud and fasted out loud and gave out loud, and everybody looked at and saw and marveled, and he's saying, here's the deal, true teachers, true prophets, true people who represent God and further your understanding of God live that way when you look at them when you don't, on a stage and off a stage. They live that way all the time. I was watching a documentary years ago on a televangelist guy named Peter Popoff, and he, um, he used to do these healing rallies. And this isn't a conversation on whether healing exists. I think um, he, he did it for one purpose. His purpose was to sham people out of their money. And then this documentary popped up, and it talked about how he had you know, secret microphones in places and how he'd, people would feed him information so it could seem like God was doing something. He took advantage of God's people because they bought into the lie that he was selling. And so when, when he says, make sure they're of one accord, meaning they're the same on stage as off stage, what he's saying is that means they truly believe in the message that they're talking about. I was listening to a leadership forum with Ravi Zacharias and um, Francis Chan this week. And those guys are like <laughs> giants in the faith, you know? Ravi Zacharias is probably the foremost apologist of our day and, and Christian philosopher of our day. He's brilliant. He's the kind of guy that when you listen to his stuff, you have to do two or three times just to get what he's saying. Unless you're with friends, then you just pretend like you got it the first time to look smart, you know? And then Francis Chan is the guy who started a mega church in San Diego and left it because he felt like God had other things for him. He reached a height that most preachers want to reach, and he said, this isn't where God has me. I feel like I shouldn't be called into this level of affluence is why I left. And they were talking about affluence in the Christian church, and they asked him, how can you go to other countries? Ravi Zacharias was born in another country, in a third world country. How can you know that and come back here and function inside the church we have in the States? And I love what they said. Ravi Zacharias kicked it off and said, you know what I think is overlooked? He said, one, I don't know if it's the church's fault that we have this comfortability. He said, because that's what we're born into. But he went on to say, and we forget the good. 
He said, do you know how generous the Christian church is in North America? And now look, we can always be more generous, but he's saying overall, when compared to other places, Christians in the United States give. We see a need and we give. Sometimes we see a need and we give without knowing what we're giving to, you know? We just keep on giving. GoFundMe and Kickstarters happen all the time like that. And people will take other people's money. There was a study that came out from Georgetown University in 2016, and it said that um, the religious sector society in the United States, the net worth of it with what everybody gives and the goods and services they offer is about $1.2 trillion. They're saying we're an incredibly generous church, and Jesus says watch out for people that don't live out the message because they're taking advantage of you to take your stuff. So he says, really, you have to do a better job of understanding what they're teaching and understanding who they are when they're not teaching. Make sure their life backs up the message. Uh, I love what John Stott said. He said, preachers must mean what they say in the pulpit and must practice what they preach when out of it. Don't just look at the people that look good on stage. Don't just look at the people who can wow you with words. Look at their lives. And if they don't, line up, run away. That's, That's a false teacher. And then finally, he says, if you look at it in verse 17 and 18, in the same way, Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree is not able to bear bad fruit, nor is a bad tree able to bear good fruit. This seems, again, pretty common sensey, but long story short, he's saying the character of the fruit reveals the character of the tree. And this one's harder because it takes time, you know? I can't see this one right off the bat. I can't see right off the bat... um, the kind of people you're creating, the kind of people that are following the message that you're sharing, the kind of people that share your values. But I can't over time. And so he says, sit and wait and look and judge in a healthy, positive way that they are backing up what they say, that they believe in the values of the family of Jesus. I got in a conversation this week about preaching, about my job and about what I like about preaching. And, and I like when people stop me and ask and they say sometimes like, hey, you've been in this role for a year. Do you, do you like preaching every week? And I say, I'm a middle child. It works, you know? Um, but also, I said, you know what? My views on preaching, I try to keep shaping. But my favorite definition of preaching isn't necessarily like you get up on a Sunday morning and I believe that I can change your life, that God can change your life through a message in one week. I, I don't know. I, I believe that's true, but I don't think that's normative. I believe the beauty in teaching isn't necessarily the week by week, but the influence and weight over time, you know? Because it's hard. Because every week you feel like you're only as good as your last sermon. (laughs) Every week you only feel like you're as good as your last deliverable, I'm sure, in any job. And what I love about that definition of preaching is what it's saying here, that if you see the followers of a people or a movement or a leader, look at the kind of values and character of those followers, and they will, like it or not, tell you how, what the leader believes. And I know it's true because I see it in churches around here, for example, right? I can probably tell after a five-minute conversation with people in our community that I went into at Target, if they go to church, what church they go into, just because of how they talk about Jesus. If it sounds like they just came from a Jesus pep rally that is beautiful, and they go to Valley Creek, everybody, all right? If they say the word season overly, and they do this a lot with their hand, they've seen Matt Chandler a few dozen times, you know? And if, let's just say if, you ask them a question, and they give you a 10-minute answer that could have been two minutes, welcome, you come to Crossroads Bible Church, you know? I can tell you, because I've, it's like an accent from all over the country, I can tell you, based on how you formulate and form words, expressions, and sayings, I can tell you who you follow. Because preaching, really, preaching 
is the act or weight of influence over time. It's what we do with our kids. Preaching doesn't just happen on the stage. It's what we do with good Sunday school teachers. It's what we do with good small group leaders. It's what has been done over time. So he's saying, if you want to find bad teachers, if you want to find the ones you should run from, look at where they teach from, look at who they are when they're not teaching, and look at the people that follow. Who are they creating? And when you look at those three things, and I know it sounds really simple, but it's a really straight litmus of, hey, okay, this is great to identify false teachers. And if any of those alarm bells get, get rung or sound off, we know that we have some questions to ask, some further study to dive into to really figure out what's going on, because we are told stories all the time. And our job is to figure out if the stories are told live out the values of Jesus. Because over time, if we sit under false teaching, it will change us. It'll change what we believe about God. And so he goes on, if you will, look at verse 22. Really, you can look at 21 and 22. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many powerful deeds in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you lawbreakers. Again, growing up when this was taught to me, was always taught with this other side of, so are you in, are you out, you know? So, so when you look at your life, is Jesus going to look at you and say, I knew you? Do you walk the walk? And, and well, I don't think that's a bad conversation. I don't know if that's what's intended here. I don't think he's in the middle of our text here saying, does the morality of your life line up with my morality? I don't think that's what the point of the section of the Sermon on the Mount is at. I think what he's looking at and saying is there are people that are going to lead you astray and those people that lead you astray are going to come to me and they're going to say, look at all the great stuff I did for Jesus. And he's going to say, yeah, you did stuff. You didn't know me. He's going to say, sure, you were a great speaker. And sure, you had a heck of a building campaign. And sure, you might have had faith healing services. And sure, you might have done the flashy stuff, but there was no substance. And the Sermon on the Mount is about substance that leads to action, not the other way around, because it doesn't. And so he's saying in this text, not feel shameful if you sinned this morning. I did too. What he's saying is watch out for the flash, because God and his family and his rhythms will choose, always have been, and will be about substance over style. Watch out for that. Because I don't know about you, but I have a proclivity towards style. You know? Scott McKnight has this quote about it. He said, The will of God is far more often works of compassion than charismatic displays of might. And so in this section, Jesus is talking to us about what to look out for because there are certain things we live into and value because we're his family and it's better. And as I was thinking about our text, and think about our job as theologians, I couldn't help, especially on a day like today, when you realize that the people who came before you equipped you and allowed you to be in the place we are today, I couldn't help but be grateful. So one of the ways that we do this is because we come together and we, as a group, rightly divide the word of truth, as the scripture says. We study it. And you take notes and you tell me where you think I was right and wrong in a grace-filled way and that's beautiful. And I challenge you and we have good conversations. And as we have conversations together, our joy deepens and our understanding grows. It's what's meant in Proverbs when it says in, ver- in chapter 11, where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. And especially on days like today, when the people from the past made my present possible, I remember the forefathers of our faith. This summer... We're going to have different summer classes in July. 
like we do. And there's going to be art classes and a cooking class or two that I'm going to help lead with Andy and a couple other people. And then we're actually going to have a class on the creeds. I love church history. I love it because it gives depth to my faith. And the first creed we're going to talk about together in that class is the Nicene Creed. And, and whether you know it or not, it happened around 325 uh, AD. And in 313, the world dramatically shifted. It went from a, a, a Christian um, attitude that was hostile in the world to one that was friendly. So it's kind of Constantine conquered, and he said, in God's name, I will conquer, and he won. And so overnight, the Roman Empire went from, I feed Christians to lions, to now you need to be one of these if you want to be a Roman. Very different. And so in 325, for the first time, a bunch of people from all over got together to talk about their faith openly. And when we say a bunch of people got together, we meant like not just three or four generations ago when we can say, oh yeah, I knew somebody that died for their faith. I'm talking like they lost loved ones and they lost limbs and they're limping into this space and saying, let's talk about this thing that really matters. And they get together and they talked against something called the Arian heresy that taught that Jesus wasn't fully God. He was really, really close though. And they said, that's not what we died for. So they got together as they were students of the text and as they read the text and as they understood who Jesus was, they said, that's not the picture of God that's painted and we will stand against that. It's what happens when we come together as believers and the more of us that come together that study, that know, that look out for, the more we can deepen our understanding and live into the rhythms of God that he's created. He's calling us to be theologians. And instead of this text being one that is fear-based, instead of this text being one that makes me ask if I'm in or out, I think it's one that calls us to joy together as we pursue God together. I think it's one where Jesus says, come and talk about the goodness that you find in me and watch out for the people that take it away. But as we get together as a group of people, as I think about today, I'm just grateful this weekend. I'm grateful for this church, I'm grateful for the Nicene Creed and all the people that fought and died so that I could believe in Jesus today. I'm grateful to get the opportunity each and every week to come here and open up the scriptures with you and say, what's God doing in your life? What's his story? Because I'm gonna press in and believe in that story amidst all the other ones that's being told to me because we're inundated, man. So God says, watch out for false teachers. They will rob you of your joy because they will take you away from the story of God. That when we get together, we declare we lean into, we learn about, and we remember a God that's worthy of worship. Pray with me. God, I'm thankful, again, that I can be here today. I'm thankful for all the people that have gone before that have allowed me to, to, to just step into this grace. I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful my friends and family and small groups and Sunday school teachers. I'm thankful for all the people that have challenged and grown me up in the faith. I pray that that can be what our church does well. That can be a people that press into the study of God so that our joy might be deepened and we fight for the values that Jesus stood for because we believe that's the best good. So give us patience. Give us wisdom as we rightly divide the text. And give us a passion, a passion for the ways and rhythms of God that we see in the scriptures as we live out his ways and invite others into his joy, into his greater life. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.